Good morning, everybody. I'm Dave uh, Burden. I'm one of the pastors uh, at Midtown Fellowship. Good morning, everybody. Come on, it used to be more hearty than that for me. Um, all right, before we get started, uh, I know at least some of you know this, uh, the World Cup final is on right now. And if you love me, uh, even if you don't love me, because you may not know me enough to love me, uh, please don't tell me what's happening with the World Cup. Even if you're watching it on the phone right now and not going to pay attention to anything I'm about to say, please don't mention anything to me uh, because right now I am actively practicing living with unfulfilled desire, which is what this sermon is actually going to be about as well. All right? So... This is the final Advent sermon uh, for this year. Uh, Adrian Pedersen, why don't you go ahead and come up? Uh, you're going to be reading for us this morning. And we've been in the book of Isaiah. We've been looking at Advent through the eyes of Isaiah, who is an Old Testament prophet to Israel. As they were awaiting the promised king, right, in the line of David that was going to come and establish this forever kingdom that they had been hearing about. And we've been actually leaning into how was Isaiah prophesying and speaking to the people of Israel, uh, kind of readying their hearts uh, and challenging their hearts in many ways as they waited for that forever kingdom, and letting Isaiah kind of shape how we, uh, who are also awaiting that same King Jesus, uh, to return and experience the fulfillment of God's promises. So we're, we're those who are also waiting uh, between the first and second comings of Christ. So... Adrian, why don't you go ahead and read for us. This is Isaiah 65, 17 to 25. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will, will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight, and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will the days of my people be... My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord, the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, let me pray for us. Lord, teach us now, uh, awaken our hearts uh, to the truth of the desire for this day that Isaiah prophesied about. Uh, I pray that um, we would feel the weight of that, uh, even the discomfort of waiting for that, uh, and not kick against that, Lord, uh, but would you minister to our hearts uh, and feed our hearts on the truth that that day is to come. It's guaranteed uh, by what your son Jesus did. Uh, so may we revel in that and uh, awaken our hearts to it this Christmas in your name. Amen. All right, so a couple things 
I feel led to say about this passage. Uh, may, this may go um, a slightly different direction than even I imagined uh, it would when I first read it, but there are two things that we're going to talk about this morning. The first thing is this, the hard news that comes with the good news, okay? And then secondly, living in the good news in hard times, okay? The hard news that comes with the good news and living in the good news in hard times. So when someone asks you uh, if you want the bad news or the good news, which do you say? Let's take a quick poll here. Who asks for the bad news first? Okay, good. You guys are right along line with the Bible. And uh, yeah, I would say, I mean, any good news, folks? Anybody want the good news before the bad news? A couple of you? All right. Yeah. Part of what makes the good news good news is it actually is, is juxtaposed and up against something bad, right? There's something hard or something difficult. But Isaiah has been following this pattern. It's not just Isaiah's pattern. It's a pattern that's in the Bible. You could argue it starts in Genesis 3, right? There's this pattern of, hey, things are bad, uh, but God is doing something about the things that are bad. So even when we just read this passage, which is all good news, right? If you were following along with what Adrian read, it is, it's astounding news, it's, it's, the word, word in Scripture would be glory, right? It's glorious what we just read, the reality of the new heavens and the new earth, right? But we're, we're at the very end of Isaiah. This is, is chapter 65, and I would expect at this point in his book, right, like you've given us plenty of bad news, so it's going to be all be good news. But like any good preacher would do, you kind of like, okay, where's this sandwiched in here? At the very beginning of chapter 65, so just the first 16 verses before this, Isaiah is still telling them bad news, right? He's saying there's some hard news still that comes with the good news of what your heart most deeply longs for. There's hard news that comes with the bad news, right? And what Isaiah, in 65, he's still doing, he's still reminding them of how bad the bad is. Let me read for you a little bit of Isaiah 65, verses 1 to 4. This is who the good news comes to. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. Think about that. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I. All day long, I've held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations. A people who continually provoke me to my very face. And he goes on to describe how they were provoking the Lord and how they were being unfaithful and how they were being obstinate and how they were living in their own imaginations. And yet, dun, 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 right? To these, to those, that is who he advented for. That is who he arrived for, who he showed up for. I call it the reverse cousin Eddie, right? Wow. You guys have not watched Christmas Vacation this year yet? Yeah, when he says to Clark, Clark, you know, are you surprised? And he said, Eddie, if I showed up tomorrow morning, with my head sewn to the floor, I wouldn't be more surprised than I am right now, right? <laughs> it's kind of the reverse, Cousin Eddie, because Clark isn't super 
excited to see Eddie, but the Lord is saying, even though you're a bunch of cousin Eddies, effectively, right? Clueless cousin Eddies who don't ask for me, who don't seek me, who don't call on my name, who are obstinate and who are pursuing your own imaginations, I'm showing up for you. So the first hard news that comes with the good news is this, that we are those who are unfaithful, that we are those who are forgetful, that we are those that he warned and he called out to, but we did not listen, we did not repent. That's what he's saying to Israel. And yet, what does he say there in verse 17? See, it's basically saying, hey, in spite of all of that, look, look at this. Look at my commitment to you and look at my commitment to our relationship. Look at my commitment to keeping my promises to you. He's basically saying this. What I said to your ancestors in Exodus when I said, I am going to bring you out of this land of slavery and you will be my people and I will be your God. I'm still keeping my promise to that. I meant it. In spite of your lack of commitment to me, I'm going to remain committed to you. And yes, for the people of Israel at this time in their history, I'm going to accomplish my plans for you through a means that will possibly even make you think that I've forgotten you, that I've bailed on you, but I haven't. I'm going to intentionally, we know what happened with the people of Israel this time, I'm going to intentionally use your enemies the Assyrians and the Babylonians, to carry you off into captivity for a period of time only to fulfill my ultimate plan and purpose of redeeming you and rescuing you, not from them, but from you. That's what you need rescued from. Your heart's captivity to its own sin and its own self-rule, that's what I came to set you free from. And that's the good news, that the Lord is that committed to his people who are hard-hearted. Listen to what it says here in verse 65, 8, after he talks about, you didn't ask for me, you didn't seek me, you did not call on my name, you're obstinate, you pursue your own imaginations. And then he says this, this just wrecked me this week. He says, but this is what the Lord says, as when juice is still found in a cluster of grapes and people say, don't destroy it, there is still a blessing in it, so will I do on behalf of my servants. I will not destroy them all. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah. Those who will possess my mountains, my chosen people will inherit them, and there my servants will live. Sharon will become a pasture for flocks in the valley of Echor, which is the valley of trouble, a resting place for herds, for my people who seek me. What is he saying there? Even if you, you know, y'all know and understand, even if you see a cluster of grapes, I say, oh, don't destroy it. Even though it could easily be destroyed, even though it deserves that. Just like you understand that with a cluster of grapes, because there's still a blessing in it. I still see good in this. You hear what the Lord's saying? I'm committed to you like that. So there's hard news that comes with the good news. That's the first part of it. The second part, there's more hard news than this good news. I know, everybody's like, wow, I'm glad I came to church this morning. <laughs> Merry Christmas, Scrooge, right? 
If you, if you followed along, if you spent the week meditating on the passage that we just read, your heart should start to do something. It should start to hurt. Like you should start to f- feel that feeling of what the psalmist says, which is basically this, how long, oh Lord, how long do I have to live in this world like this? Right? How long must we wait for that day to come with unfulfilled desire? Right? Because this is Isaiah's version. If you go read in Revelation 21.5 at the end of the Bible, right? John's revelation that he had after Christ had come and ascended, right? Long before John's revelation of a new heavens and new earth, this is what Isaiah was prophesying. It's almost verbatim. So before Christ and after Christ, we're longing for this day. How long, O Lord, how long must I wait for this day? How long must I wait with unfulfilled desire for this new heavens and this new earth? And here's how I was thinking about it this week. Because we talk about, and it is true, the gospel is good news, right? It is. It's the good news. It's proclaimed. It's not something you do. It's something you hear that has been done. It's finished. We are still waiting for the good news to be fully experienced, not just as news. If it's just news to you, it's not enough. We're waiting for it to be experienced as reality. Like in Revelation 21, it says, Behold, I am making all things new. It doesn't say, Behold, I am making all things news. Right? I'm waiting for the news to become the new. From my expectations, because if you don't realize that you have this desire for this day in your chest and you walk around with it every day, you have expectations for this. For my expectations to become my experience. For my desire to become a destination. To be not desire, but done. I was meditating, think about this, about that tension that we live in. And I, I stumbled across this. I was doing some thinking about like, what's an example of like, other than this, news that is yet to be fulfilled? And I came across um, an operation that happened right after World War II called Operation Magic Carpet. Does anybody know about this? Mitch and I talked about it a little bit and Christopher and I talked about it. I didn't know anything about this. But basically, VE Day, when, when World War II uh, was finished and uh, Germany and Japan surrendered, right? I think it was on September the 2nd, if I'm, I'm, I'm not a horrible world history teacher. Sorry, Mr. Elsesser. Uh, anyways, yeah, that's a whole other story, right? September the 2nd, on September the 6th, an operation called Operation Magic Carpet was basically in, invoked by our government to bring home the 8 million men and women who were overseas in 55 different countries fighting in different theaters of war. Uh, Four days after World War II ended, that process began to bring everybody home. All right? And it took a year. 22,000, 2,200 people a day for a year. Right? Were being brought home. I was thinking about this because we think of the ticker tape parades and the newspapers like victory, right? The war is over. And yet, 
which is true. The victory was won. The war was over. This day is a day that is to come, right? But I bet, because I experienced this in my own life, the experience on a personal level for someone who had a son or a daughter or a husband or a wife who was over there, the experience of the newspaper was just news until that person walked through the front door. Great, the victory is won, it's over. Where's my wife? Where's my husband? Where's my son? Where's my daughter? I think it's a good picture for us of the truth of what we live in. The news, the good news of the gospel, the promises of the second coming of Christ, and everything that's hooked to the trailer of that, the wagon of the new heavens and the new earth, the freight train of glory, it's coming, it's guaranteed, and yet we're awaiting its arrival. Like a mother waiting for her son to walk through the door for a year. Are you on that 222,000 today, tomorrow? I know the victory's won. When are you coming home? So we live, that's part of the hard news about the good news is we live with that tension. C.S. Lewis wrote a whole book about it. I don't even have time to read it, any of it today. The Weight of Glory. If you've never read this book, read it. It's not even a whole book. It's a little essay within this book. And it talks about the weight, literally the weight, the, the heaviness of glory that is on your heart that you carry around in your chest every single day and gets attached and misplaced to things too small. But you live with that. We are waiting like that. If you don't understand that, it's dangerous to not understand it. But part of what's challenging about that is this, that naturally and culturally, and that's not just our culture today, Proverbs 13, 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. If you're waiting with hope, you are going to experience heart sickness, right? You're going to experience tension. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, Right? But naturally, in our flesh and culturally, waiting is not just acknowledged as hard, it's treated as bad. Do you know when you make the difference, that differentiation? Like, it's not just difficult, it's wrong, is how we feel about it a lot of days. If I have to wait, something is wrong. And usually for me, it means something's wrong with God. Either God isn't good God doesn't love me. Maybe God isn't going to keep his promises. Maybe God can't keep his promises. I shouldn't have to wait. And who likes waiting? I'm not saying I do. I'm not talking about liking waiting. I'm talking about acknowledging that life is a life of waiting. We live in a world, what does Snickers tell us? Hungry? Why wait? Grab a Snickers, because I don't want a Snickers. What my heart desires is this, right? Or Snickers also tells us this, you're not yourself when you're hungry, right? You absolutely are most yourself when you're hungry. <laughs> that is a lie from the pit of hell, Snickers. <laughs> you see what, it, what, what our world's trying to do, though, it's saying... Oh, no, 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 you're not yourself when you're hungry. Eat, eat, eat. And it's like, no, 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 I'm most myself when I'm hungry. I'm most myself when I'm in touch with that desire. 
If you're going to be, if you are a Christian, but especially if you're going to be a mature Christian, you are, you are signed up for and you have been saved into a life of unfulfilled desire. That's hard to say out loud, but it's true. It's not culturally cool to say out loud, but it's real. I'll say it again. If, to be a Christian is to live a life this side of the second coming of Christ with unfulfilled desire. Unfulfilled glory, insatiable, unsatisfied longing, and living and learning how to live in and manage that tension. We'll talk about that here in a second. I don't have to kill that desire. Don't kill it. You can't kill it. It's like trying to keep a beach ball under the water when you're on top of it. It will come up because it's a desire that God has given you. He planted eternity inside of your hearts, Ecclesiastes says. You, you didn't create the desire. He gave it to you. He created you with it. So you can't kill it, and certainly you can't fulfill it. This passage is telling us that. You're waiting for it, and you will get partial tastes of it in our relationships, in our work, You'll get partial tastes of it here, but those things are only pointing to the real thing. It's not about those things. It's about this. It's hors d'oeuvres for the feast that is to come. And as believers, we'll get into this here in a second, you have been equipped for this journey. You have been equipped to live in that tension, to embrace that tension, to not rail against that tension or to deny it, or to misplace it on something else, something too small, like money, or like a career, or like your marriage, or like your kids and how they're going to turn out. When you bring the weight of the desire for this day onto any one of those things, they will and do buckle under the weight of that. I can give you a laundry list of people to go talk to who Dave Burden brought the weight of his desire for eternity upon them, and they crumbled under the weight of those expectations. God has set eternity in your heart, this day in your heart, and it's a lot to walk around with every day. But because he has set it in your heart, you have a pilgrim's heart. Right? You have a pilgrim's heart, a heart that is longing and journeying towards a day that the Lord says is coming, but it is not yet. So life is going to be lived with a gap. This is what I wrote down. Life will be lived with a gap between the expectation and desire that my heart has and the reality that I experience, which means my life is going to be marked by degrees of disappointment, Momentary tastes of satisfaction only to have those things give way to disappointment and longing for more. Merry Christmas. It's, 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 I said to the group who's preparing to teach our kids before this, if we're, if we're teaching our kids that all of their desires can be had in this life, we're not doing them any service. We're coached that way culturally. <laughs> But, but part of what we, we desperately need to do, and I beg the Lord to do it for me and for us, is that we realize that the things that we long for, it's not wrong to long for those things, but we, it's not that we want those things too much, it's that we don't want enough. 
You want so much more than those things. Do you know it? So that's the hard news and the good news. I have like 10 minutes to talk about living in the good news in hard times. So I've talked about the gap, right? The gap in our heart between what we long for and what we desire and what we experience and the tension that that is. Christmas can't make that go away. Nothing under the tree is going to make that go away. Sorry, kids. It's going to be great for a day, and all of us parents know that. It's going to be great for like 26 minutes. <laughs> right? And then I'm going, to, well, I'm going to want more. Do I ever stop and ask the question, what's that all about? When I get everything I want, and then I still want more. What's that all about? It's about this. So how do I... I call it mind the gap. You know those signs in, in, the, uh, in the tube, as they say, the tube? How do I mind the gap? The gap between what I long for and, and what I'm promised and it isn't here yet. Well, this is the first step of minding the gap. But most people, they're so concerned with like step two, five, 10, 12, that they miss the first step. And like in a good relationship, if you get off on the wrong foot, you know, you're going to head in the wrong direction. So here's the first step, and it may seem obvious. You have to be reminded, and you have to know the good news. Now, that sounds kind of overly simple. It's like, really, that's your point? Living in the good news in hard times requires you knowing the good news and to be reminded of the good news all the time. Now, I don't know about you, but when you turn on the news in the morning, I, it's hard to even watch the news anymore because it's like, it's like something burned down, someone got really hurt somehow. It's like stacking of stories. Like I saw someone showed a picture of a coyote dragging a kid away from a car the other day, and I was like, oh, I hate those coyotes. And then it was in California. I thought it was like in our backyard. I'm like, man... You don't even have enough bad news that's happening in Tennessee. You've got to bring the, the coyote from California in and show me that right now, right? It's just bad news, bad news, bad news all the time. I have to know the good news, and I have to be reminded of this good news all the time. That's why we worship. That's why you are here this morning, I hope, is to be reminded of the good news. It's why small groups and fellowship and companion with other believers who are reminding and orienting your heart to the truth of what it most deeply desires. That's why those relationships are so vital. That's why communing with God through prayer or a life in his word and in his promises is so vital. We don't do those things to make God love us or to do something for us. We don't like spend time with the Lord to like trigger him to be good towards us. We do those things to remember that he does love us and that he has done something for us. And so that my life and our lives don't have to be lived trying to fulfill or achieve or accomplish or secure the destination for that desire that only the Lord says, only I can accomplish. I'll, I'll literally say this, for every, <laughs> for every one look at the bad news, you need 10 looks at the good news. And I don't have to look outside of me to see a lot of bad news. I mean, I just busted the news anchor's chops, but I'm such a profound 
inconsistency. I, I have things that made it hard to stand up here and preach this morning because of how I treated my family yesterday. So I don't have to look past me to find some bad news and how desperately I need to come back to remember that even though I'm the obstinate one, even though I'm the one who's not calling on the Lord, the Lord is the one who says, see, I'm gonna create for you a new heavens and a new earth. I will create Jerusalem to be its delight. I will rejoice over you and take delight in you. So let's look at a few of these things. Go back to the passage for a second. You can even throw it up there if you want. The first step in living in the good news in hard times is, is actually meditating on the good news. And the good news is this, that the things that your heart most deeply longs for and values that are congruent with the nature and the character and the promises of God, if you're in Christ, those things will come completely true and entirely experienced. That's a guarantee. So what is the good news just in this passage? Because this passage has got a lot of good news in it, right? How about this one? First thing, verse 19. I will rejoice over Jerusalem, which, yes, is a city and a place, but it's also a people. I will take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. What is that talking about? Well, it's talking about perfect intimacy and perfect love and perfect relationships, Right? That the apocalyptic romance that you and I are always looking for and that culture is selling us, it's going to be had one day, but it's in the Lord. Proverbs 19 talks about this. It says, what a person desires is unfailing love. Better to be poor than a liar. What you and I were made for was unfailing, steadfast love and to be rejoiced in and delighted over. You and I want that, don't we? I was created for that. And oftentimes what I end up doing is what I, I'm trying to do is that I'm trying to do something, I'm trying to create something even, trying to be something in order to be rejoiced in and delighted over. So that means the rejoicing and the delighting is all about my performance. And do you see what this promise is? The good news of this is, is that a day is coming where you will be delighted in and it will have nothing to do with what you did. You want to talk about Freedom. Almost everything in our lives is about performing to get love. And he's saying there's a day coming where you will no longer have to dance to be loved, but you will dance because you are. You will have perfect intimacy, perfect relationship with the Lord, perfect relationship with one another. That's even hard to fathom. No more tears, no more sorrow. That means we'll have a perfect emotional state. He says there, the former things will not be remembered. That means you're dealing with regret and shame. It will be over. You will have no more regret. You will have no more shame. You will have no more tears. You will have no more sorrow. There will be no more death. Never again will there be an infant that lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. All of these are metaphors to say death will be no more. You'll have perfect intimacy, perfect love, perfect emotional state, perfect peace. What does it say there at the end? They will neither harm nor destroy. All of Isaiah has been talking about this, right? Plowshares in, or swords into plowshares, and the kid will hang out with the cobra, right? There's going to be perfect peace, no more war, no more conflicts, 
We'll have perfect relationships with ourselves, my relationship with me, my relationship with others, and the Lord will have perfect work. They will build, uh, where are we at here? Verses 22 and 23. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat of their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others will live in them. Or plant and others eat. For as in the days of the tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. They will not labor in vain. I mean, man, we could talk about that for a whole sermon. What would it mean to not labor in vain? Any of you feel like I work all the time and I'm like, really? Is that all I have to show for what I do? Is that it? Does my life have any purpose or any meaning? Or how much of my work can be done in vain, like in vanity? I'm doing my work in order to get something, right? He's saying, no, 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 your work will be perfected. It will have purpose, it will have meaning, and you won't be doing it to get value. You will be doing it because you have value. And you're going to have the perfect home. I know we're all working on that, right? But it's not in the zip code, and interest rates won't affect it, (laughs) right? You have a home that is being prepared for you, and that I guess we're going to get to work on as well. And that won't be like the junky work that I do on my home right now, right? Glory. Perfect intimacy, perfect emotional state, perfect peace, perfect relationships, perfect work, perfect home. If you're going to live in the good news in hard times, you must know that good news and you have to be reminded of it often. And God hasn't just said, okay, remember it, remember it, tell yourselves it. He's actually done something. He's done us one better. This isn't in this passage, but it's definitely replete throughout Scripture. I haven't just said eternity in your heart. If you're a Christian, I have set myself in your heart. He has given us the Holy Spirit. You have the first fruits of this day to come. Right? You have access to snack. Right? On the future, in the present. The role of the Holy Spirit. Jesus even said, it's good for you that I'm going away because I'm going to prepare this place for you. But the Holy Spirit is going to come remind you of the truth. And comfort you in the meantime, because things are going to be hard. But if, if I don't know the promises of God, if I don't know the good news, then the Holy Spirit is kind of impotent in our lives. Ephesians 6 says that the, that the, the word of God is the sword of the Spirit. And the sword is something to attack and to defend with, right? That's actually God's promises in the hand of the Holy Spirit that actually reminds us and applies the truth to our hearts in the middle of the valley of Accor, in the valley of trouble. That the word and God's promises and his truth, the good news are the tapes that the Holy Spirit plays on the road trip home. The song of his rejoicing over us. It says in Zephaniah, right? If you know that Zephaniah is another prophet in the Old Testament, he says, he will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Saying the very same thing. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. Think about it. I see you think quiet you with his love. I think of like rocking a baby to sleep. That's not, that's not the picture here. Think about being in your car and like ratcheting it up to 11. I, I'm going to quiet you, the noise in your head, because I'm rejoicing over you so loudly.
Do you hear the song? Do you hear it? The hope, the desire, the longings that you were made for? He wants in this season to turn it up, to drown out your fear, to drown out the lies. Time is up. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for this good news. Uh, thank you that we can rest in the reality that there is a day to come. Not that we will create, but that you will create a new heavens and a new earth. Thank you that the former things, it's hard to believe this, that they won't be remembered, including my sin and my shame. Thank you that there will be a day where we will experience what is true that you delight in us and you rejoice over us with singing. Lord, we long for this day. Um, and I just confess that many days um, I don't want to wait. I'm tired of waiting. Uh, and I, I substitute so many things in, uh, hoping that they're going to satisfy. I'm, I'm a Snickers addict in so many ways. And yet, uh, like the good father that you are, even when I'm obstinate and following my own imagination, like you have done faithfully for Israel and for everyone who you've called. Uh, you discipline us and you call us back to the truth uh, that our hearts were made for you. So I pray for my friends, uh, Lord, and for myself that this season we would not try to fulfill all of our desire, but we would get deeply in touch with the desire that can only be fulfilled in you and that we would learn how to live in that tension and be people uh, who actually uh, point others uh, to the hope that we know uh, is only satisfied in you. Would you do that, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.